Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you would, please open your Bibles with me. We're continuing in this series, Living Beyond the Muck, and uh, the next stop along the way is Psalm 9. So you can open your Bible to Psalm 9, and I'll read it to you this morning. To the choir master, according to Moth Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their critics you rooted, their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not men prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Amen. I remember in my college years, I went with a group of my friends to one of the national parks. It was, I did school in West Virginia, so this park was over in Kentucky, and this park the main attraction of it was extensive cave networks. Now, if you ever go and you visit a park like this, of course, you may see a sign that says something along the lines of, please do not go into caves that have not been mapped out or documented. Kind of dangerous. But, you know, I'm a college student at this time. I like bending the rules a little bit. So we're walking through the park. We see a hillside. There's a little hole in the hillside. And I decide to go crawling into the hole. I grab my flashlight. I start crawling into the tunnel. The further that I get into the tunnel, the more I realize that the tunnel is closing in. Oh, it'll be fine, 
right? It's going to open up as I keep going. I get to this point of no return. I can't go forward. I can't go backward. And my life starts flashing before my eyes in that moment. I'm envisioning these rescue workers coming and pulling me out of the tunnel. Uh, I've heard that, you know, flash floods can happen while you're in caves. It was a bright, sunny day, but I'm like, what if it starts raining? I'm envisioning the funeral. People lined up as long as they would for Mother Teresa to come and say kind things of me. Well, okay, it wasn't that big of a deal. I panicked a little bit. And I realized, okay, I can kind of wiggle my way out of here. And let me just say this. Like, after I got out of that tunnel, that was the first and the last time that I ever crawled into a cave that I didn't know anything about. Now, as I think about that, I think about these wise words that I heard from the, the wise one. Uh, if you know her, you know she's very wise, Lillian Edmonds. And she said this about people. Sometimes people get stuck. They get stuck. It's a great insight into people. If you sit in the counseling chair ever, you may hear someone who is dealing with issues, concerns, frustrations to the same level today that they experienced, say, 5, 10, 15, even 20 years ago. They're still angry. They're still hurt. They're still anxious. They're fearful that if, if this person did this to me, perhaps someone else would do it to me also. Now, Lillian said that that's getting stuck. I, I'm still in the same state. If anything, I'm feeling it more intensely today than I was back then. So I go through the Psalms and I think about the life of David. I think to myself, you know, if there was ever a guy who could get stuck, it was David. I mean, this guy's life was tumultuous. It was filled with ups and downs. He lost children. He was betrayed deeply by people that he had come to know well, that he had trusted in life. He ran for his life. He had people that had murderous plots against him. And yet, as you look at Psalm chapter 9, you don't read in Psalm 9 the experience of a person who gets stuck. You read the experience of someone who looks back and says, you know what? I've overcome. I turned out okay, even though these things happened to me. Why? Why was David able to get unstuck in life? As I look at this Psalm, I believe the answer to it is that he had a commitment to a life of praise. That's his answer for you and me. If you look at it, first look at verses 1 and 2. He begins the psalm with praise. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in your name. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And not only does he start the psalm that way, but then he invites us into this commitment of a life of praise. Verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. I remember as a young boy one time, my mom told us not to go into this mucky patch around a pond. We did it anyway. 
Uh, we got into the muck, we got stuck. She had to throw us a lifeline so that we could get out of the muck. And what I wanna suggest to you this morning is David is telling us in this psalm that praise is a lifeline to pull you out of the muck. Well, how does that work? How does that work? Well, as we look at the psalm, we're going to see something very important about praise. I would argue this, that praise is an invitation to find your joy in God. It's an invitation to find your joy in God. As you think about this dynamic of praise, why does God in Scripture tell me, uh, a human, that I need to offer praise up to him? Is it because God doesn't feel good enough about himself and he needs me to tell him good things about himself to make him feel better? Of course not. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it like this in his commentary on the Psalms. He says, the miserable idea that God should in any sense need or crave for our worship like a vain woman wanting compliments or a vain author presenting his new books to people who never met or heard of him is implicitly answered by the words from Psalm 50, where God says, if I was hungry, would I tell you? Of course he wouldn't. He doesn't need anything from me. So then why does the Bible tell me that I must commit myself to the life of praise? Well, why do we praise anything? Why is it when you see, if you're a parent, your, your child brought into the world and, and you look at their hands and feet and you exclaim aloud, oh my gosh, she's perfect. She's lovely. He's beautiful. Why do you get in the car in the fall time and drive two or three hours to see the fall foliage in New Hampshire or Vermont? Why do you watch a football game with a couple of friends and when they make that big play, you say, oh, wasn't that an incredible pass? I loved it. Well, Lewis says this about praise. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And I think that's a great observ observation. The idea here is that praise completes enjoyment. So when I'm watching the game with my friends and we're high-fiving and we're shouting together, it's better that way. It's the same thing if you like musicals. You go and you watch the musical and then you talk about it later with people. The idea here is that joy is incomplete until we express it in praise. So how do you get unstuck in life? How do you get the most out of this life? How do you get deep satisfaction and fulfillment? Well, David is telling us that you must find an object who is worthy of your praise. Now, sometimes our praise is aimed at the wrong things. I can aim it at myself. Well, aren't I a pretty good guy? Or I can aim it at my kids or my career. I can aim it at the, the, the thrills and exhilarations of life, the accumulation of things. It can become misplaced. 
But after all, we're looking at the Psalms, and the Psalms gives us a pretty clear answer on what will bring us the most joy out of life. It tells us that it's God. It's the creator of the universe. Uh, the Psalms tell us this all over the place. Uh, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why is that? Why is God the object that brings me the most joy? Because there's nothing in this universe who is more beautiful, more exciting, more captivating than the creator of this universe who spoke everything that you see today into existence, creato ex nihilo. Amen. Nothing becomes everything we see. And clearly, if that is the God of the universe, then he is the most exciting, exhilarating of all things in this world. So the Psalms are telling us that you are not going to experience joy until you see God for who he is, and you root your joy and your pleasure in him. Psalm 38, or 34, verse 8, same thing. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So David tells us two things about God in this psalm. Here's why he is worthy of your praise. One thing he tells us is that God's praiseworthy. The other thing he tells us is that God is trustworthy. You see, to live the life of praise, you must do spiritually what is impossible to do physically. You must be willing to look backward and forward at the same time. I think there's an important distinction between praise and trust. You see, praise looks back and it celebrates what God has already done. Trust, on the other hand, looks forward and anticipates what God will do. So praise remembers and trust hopes. And in this life of praise, Praise is built upon those two foundations, looking backward and celebrating what he has done and looking ahead and anticipating what he will do. So David begins with the praiseworthiness of God. He tells us what God has already done. If you look at verses 9 and 10, he tells us something that God did in his life. He says that God is a stronghold in times of trouble. Now, David had troubles. Like I said, lost children, ran for his life, spent nights in caves, ran in the wilderness, friend betrayals. I mean, the amount of troubles that this man experienced in a lifetime pales uh, in comparison. I mean, we pale in comparison to him. Lots of troubles. So why is he declaring that God's good, and why does he have this sense of vindication? Well, he's seen God show up. He's seen God be a stronghold in his life. You look at verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. So for David, God's presence is a protective presence. It's kind of like a brother when there's a backyard bully. I remember when my brother was in sixth grade, he had a bully that would follow him home on his walk home from school. And this guy was big. He was like six foot. He had grown quickly. And for whatever reason, he had latched onto my brother. Well, one day, 
I happened to be out there and I was witnessing it and I got into this bully's face. I mean, I looked up at him, I'm a little squirt. I'm looking him dead in the eye and I'm like, dude, if you mess with my brother, you're messing with me too. I'm giving him the ugly eye. And you know what the funniest part of all of this was? The guy actually turned around and left. See, my brothers, and maybe your family was like this too, we fought like cats and dogs, but I'm the only one that's allowed to mess with him. You're not allowed to. It was the presence, right? It was someone standing up, someone willing to protect, someone to say, I'm not going to stand for this. And here's the truth about God. His presence is infinitely better than my presence. God's with you. He's for you. David experienced these enemies turning back in his life. I think of 1 Samuel 23, the desert of Maon. David's fleeing for his life from his enemy Saul. They're on this mountain. David's on one side of the mountain. Saul's on the other side of the mountain. Of all the times that Saul had been pursuing David, perhaps this is the, the, the time where he most felt like a caged animal. Where am I going to go? Where am I going to turn? How am I going to evade him this time? God shows up. Saul receives a report that the Philistines are invading into Israel, and he leaves. And David, the more he walked with God, the more he saw God be that stronghold, develop this confidence in God's presence. I love how he describes it in Psalm 18, verse 29. For by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. He felt strengthened and confident because of God's protective presence in his life. Well, David not only sees God as a stronghold, but he also tells us in verses 7 and 8 that God is enthroned forever as the righteous judge. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Do you remember what we noted about evil last week? We said that evil wishes to replicate itself. It wishes to multiply. It wishes to grow. And the only way that evil can be dealt with is that evil must be eradicated. But here's the thing about evil. It doesn't want to be eradicated. It wants to live. It wants to perpetuate. It's kind of like animals with survival strategies. You think about the fish in the ocean. They have different ways of maintaining life, don't they? Some of the fish, they have these spines. And if you grab one of those fish, it shoots its spine into your hand. And what do you do? You let it go and you scream. Other fish use camouflage. I think of the stonefish. When it is set into its position and it's camouflaged, you cannot see this thing. It's incredible. There's a fish that lives around here that visits our shores. This is called the ocean sunfish. Isn't it beautiful? Oh, awe-inspiring how pretty that thing is. <laughs> that fish has a different survival strategy. Its survival strategy is growing. It gets really, really big. Starts off as this little speck, and they grow up to like 2,000 pounds, some of them bigger than 2,000 pounds, and they grow 
rapidly. An ocean sunfish can grow from 57 pounds to 880 pounds in less than 18 months. Huge. So what does it do? It's just like, hey, I'm going to get so big that another fish can't eat me. I'm just going to be the big kid on the block, and no one's going to mess with me if I get this big. And I believe that evil likes that survival strategy. It loves to grow as big as quickly and as rapidly as it can. And what does it do when it becomes this big hulking mass like the, the sunfish? What is it like to feed upon? Well, Scripture tells us that evil targets the weak and the vulnerable. The people in society that can't fend for themselves, who can't take care of themselves. Evil has a, a beeline for these people in the way that it targets them. So scripture tells us, though, that God's not okay with that. He's a righteous judge. If you look at verse 12, it says this of the Lord, For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. There are things that happen in this world. I think of orphans living in some of the big cities around the world, and I've seen these orphans firsthand. And, you know, there's no one really looking out for them, no one taking care of them. And it's so easy in certain contexts for them to get grabbed up, forced into slavery. And you, you think about that problem and you think, oh boy, how does that get solved? It's like the unnoticed, unreported type of crimes that take place in the world. And then you read something like Psalm 9 verse 12 and it tells us very clearly that there's no perfect crime. There's someone watching. There's someone who cares. There's someone who the wicked person who would take one of those children must stand before one day and give an account. And David, of course, gives God glory for that. So God's praiseworthy. He's a stronghold. He's a righteous judge who sits enthroned forever. But we're going to notice as we move to the second half of the psalm that David's praise becomes a prayer request. Look at verses 13 and 14, and you'll see this. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. So let's kind of recap this a little bit. Remember, praise looks backwards, Trust looks forwards. Praise remembers what God has done. Trust takes fresh courage and hopes that God will do it again. As we close out this service, Josiah is going to lead us through a song that expresses this tension of praise. The song title is Do It Again. And in the bridge, we sing very simply, I've seen you move, you move the mountains, and I believe I'll see you do it again. You made a way when there was no way. And I believe I'll see you do it again. And there's a big reason that we need to remember this in the life of praise. Dale Ralph Davis explains it like this. 
Wonderful deliverances can be followed by fresh needs. Listen to what he says here. A believer's life does not consist of a jam or two, but normally of troubles all along the way. We should never be surprised that after a marvelous deliverance, we are somehow in the middle of more slop. And that happens. Of course it does. So why do I need to learn to trust the Lord in the life of praise? Well, it turns out that sometimes God shows up and I, I look back and I celebrate that, but then things come new that are fresh, that are different. And guess what? I've got to trust them all over again. I can't trust God in the past tense. I can only trust God in the present for my future. So the life of praise involves me remembering the context that I live in. Remember, we say that this world is mucky. This is the context. We live in a world where bad things happen. Would you agree? Of course we do. In verse 18, David says that the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. So you notice in that language that he's suggesting that there is bad things that happen, because if the poor shouldn't always be forgotten, sometimes they are right now, not by God, but in this world. But there's more to the context. And what's more to the context? Well, God is always on the throne. He doesn't leave the throne. He's working out his justice right now in the world. He intends to complete his justice in the world. We happen to live in this tension of already and not yet. So God is on the throne now working on his justice, and the Bible says he will complete his justice in the future. So sometimes our prayer request is like verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord. You know what it means to say, arise, O Lord, to God? It means I need you to show up now in this context, in this experience that I'm dealing with. Let not men prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Look at that last phrase there. They are but men. Nothing will impact your trust in the Lord like forgetting that they are but men. When we forget that people are but men, people become big and God becomes small. And when God becomes small, I get stuck. I hold on to things that happened 20 years ago. I fear for the future instead of taking fresh confidence in God for the future. So the only way to get unstuck in life is that I, as a worshiper, must grow my awareness of the bigness of God. How do you do that? Well, in this psalm, David shows us five things that we do in the life of praise that help us to grow our awareness of God. He begins in verse 1 with thanksgiving. He says, I will give thanks 
to the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord. It's interesting. If you look at this idea of gratitude, study after study shows us that gratitude is very good for your overall well-being, both physically and mentally and emotionally. There was a study that was released by Harvard, their Department of Health, and they had three test groups. One test group was asked to look back at the prior week and write down all the things they were thankful for. The other group was asked to look back at the prior week and write down all the things that irritated them. And the third group was to just neither positively or negatively look back at the week, but simply objectively describe what happened. And as you think about those three groups, after 10 weeks of practicing this, who do you think felt better at the end? The gripers, of course, right? They always feel better. The glass half-empty people. No. Thanksgiving. Gratitude. And I got to tell you all, you didn't need a Harvard study to figure that out. Because the Bible over and over and over again says that gratitude combats things like fear and anxiety and depression. It tells us all over the place to give thanks to the Lord for the things that he's done. I like what David says in Psalm 69, magnify God with thanksgiving. What does it mean to magnify? Well, magnifying means that you're, again, putting something in your attention, under your attention, to grow your awareness of it. Now, we're not talking about putting God under a magnifying glass, right? Because magnifying glasses take small things and and make them larger. That's what we do with our problems, by the way. You fixate on your problems that are like little bugs compared to God's power, and the little bugs become monsters in your mind. No, when we look at God, it's more like looking at God through a telescope. A telescope brings something that is very distant, way beyond your perception, way bigger than you can take in in your simple field of vision, and it brings it into perspective so that you can appreciate it. So don't look through the magnifying glass at your problems. Look through the telescope at God. And you do that with gratitude. David continues and he says that the other way that you do this is you commit to praising God with a whole heart. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In other words, David is saying, I'm not approaching this life with this holy, glorious, majestic God and offering him my limp praise, my half-hearted praise. He gets all of me, the whole heart. Now today, one of the problems with this understanding of whole heart is we've kind of equated worship with emotional experience. You know, the two things are equivalent to one another in our mind, but that's just not true of worship. That's not worship, how it was designed or what it was meant for. Here's the problem with rooting your whole worship experience in your emotional experience. It's great to have good emotions. 
I love when good emotions come. I love when I'm sitting in church and I'm hearing music and I feel moved in my heart and I want to respond to God. God's given me emotions for a reason. But my emotions are fickle, sometimes fleeting. And guess what? Manipulating. They can manipulate me and they can manipulate others. So scripture shows us that wholehearted praise is not so much about your mood as it is about your mindset. It's more about the mind than just how I feel. It's a choice rather than a chance. If worship is just a chance, well, that means that I showed up to this church service and everything was just right. Like all the stars were aligned. The lighting was just right. They were pumping out the smoke. The worship team was just incredible. The preacher got up and, and he had a home run sermon. And, and I'm just fortunate enough to be there that morning to have the chance to experience that good worship. Let me just say this. No one can deliver that experience to you 52 weeks a year, year after year. Don't rest the weight of your worship on people. Amen. Worship is a choice. Sometimes worship looks like this. I don't feel like going to church today. I don't want to roll out of bed. I'm hurt. Or I'm just not with it this morning, but I know that God's worthy of my attention, and so I'm choosing to show up, and I'm going to offer him what I have this morning. I'm giving him the best that I've got to give. He gets all of me. See, that's a choice. That's not a chance. Worship is something that I give God. I show up to church and I offer him whatever I have that morning. It's not what I get from God. The emotions, those are a fringe benefit of worship. And if you get good emotional experiences, praise God for that. But it's not the goal. The goal is to give the God of the universe my full attention because he's worthy. David also shows us that a big part of worship is remembering and recounting. Look at verse one again. He talks about recounting all of God's wonderful deeds. What are God's wonderful deeds? Well, those are the things that God has done that inspire awe and wonder in us. In the Old Testament, the wonderful deeds were the miraculous things that the people of Israel had witnessed God do. Some of it goes all the way back to creation. He brought the world into existence. It was in their history. He parted the Red Sea. He made the sun stand in the sky for almost a whole day when Joshua had reached out to God and prayed. But these wonderful deeds are also more mundane things that God has done in our personal experience, in our personal life. Let me ask you a question. Have you seen God do wonderful deeds in your life? Have you seen him move? Have you seen him work? Well, Scripture tells us that it is appropriate and proper then to recount those deeds. There's power in recounting God's deeds. 
What does it mean to recount? Well, it, rem- it means to go over something so many times in your mind and your heart that you internalize it. I remember, and this is, I'm not proud of this one, uh, but when I was in high school, I watched the movie uh, Dumb and Dumber to the point that I became Dumb and Dumber. You, I know you guys are laughing because you've probably watched the movie that many times. You, you watch the movie so many times that you're saying the lines before the actors are saying the lines. In fact, if the movie wasn't running, you could probably say the movie. Well, I'm telling you, recounting God's deeds is far better than Dumb and Dumber. It's coming back into your mind and your heart and remembering, what has he done? How has he showed up in my life? How has he proven himself to me? Perhaps it's a quiet time that you had. Perhaps it was something that you were praying for intensely. And, And even if it didn't turn out just the way that you thought it should, you saw God move in and through it. He came through. You know, Scripture says that there is a natural pathway with this recounting that should occur. It begins within, right? Because I remember and I, I reflect and I just love the fact that he's done this thing in my life. But then it tells us that the next step of praise is to tell others. You see that in the psalm? Look at verse 11 again. Tell among the peoples his deeds. In other words, the wonderful deeds of God are not meant to be self-contained within you. They're meant to become a conduit for you proclaiming the goodness of God in your life to others. It's about your Jesus conversations. Telling people what God has done for you. Your story. Your testimony. And church, that's why we're going out to the beach tonight. There's four people who have seen the goodness of God, who have met the person of Jesus in their life, who've placed their faith in him, and they're standing up at the beach and they're telling the good deeds of God in their life. That's why baptism is so important. You know, if you are looking to follow the Lord with your life and live this life of praise that I'm talking about, Baptism is such an important step in all of that. It's coming out as a Christian and saying, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I am identifying fully with his life, with his crucifixion, with his resurrection. I'm telling others about what he's done for me. Tell you, if you haven't made that step in your life of praise, We're going to be baptizing people again in August, and I I just really encourage you, there's a list out in the lobby. Sign up for the list. Give glory to God. Tell about his good deeds in your life. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we are so thankful for Psalm 9, this commitment to the life of praise. We look backward and we think about the things that you have done, Lord, along the way, your marvelous deeds. We praise you for those, Lord. Sometimes that, that really looks like you working us out of a pickle that we have found ourselves in. 
Lord, we look ahead too, and we see that if you're the God in the past who showed up and proved himself faithful, that you're also the God in the present and the future who will remain faithful. Lord, help us to put down the magnifying glass, to stop looking at our problems and seeing little bugs become monsters, and help us to take up the telescope to see you for all that you are, for your glorious nature. You are God. And you are worthy of our full attention. Lord, we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray.